I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk's podcast. Today's show number is 438, and we're going to be talking about what is autism, discussing the initial diagnosis with parents. This course is brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, where we're the largest online provider of ASHA-approved early intervention CEUs. Now, this is the second part of a new podcast series called Beginning Speech Therapy with Autistic Children. In this series, we'll be analyzing video clips of toddlers and preschoolers who've been on my caseload, and I'll be sharing with you the stra- sharing with you the strategies that have worked best. Now, this course is adapted from a course that I taught live throughout the United States and on DVD. Therapists, you can get credit for this course in our $10 CEU program, and that link is right here below. Now, handouts of podcasts are also available with purchase of CE credit or parents. You can now get that handout uh, for yourselves, for your own personal library, or to share with therapists who work on your children's team, and you'll get the link uh, below here uh, in the post. So let's get started. Now, reliably identifying the signs and symptoms of autism is important for every therapist, every discipline in all treatment settings and no matter what treatment model you use. And so why is that important? Because we who work in early intervention and pediatrics are often the very first professional that a family's worked with beyond that pediatrician. And so we have to really, really, again, help parents understand what those signs and symptoms are so that we can give them the most accurate indicator of what's going on with their child and so that we can provide the very best programming. Now, this is podcast number 438, and it's part two of the first diagnostic show in the series. So what we're going to be doing is walking through the official diagnostic criteria for autism, and that's from the DSM-5. And we're going to be using a tool that I developed in 2016, and it's part of your handout package for shows 437 and 438. And let me just mention, since this is part two of this show, it's going to be better for you to go back and listen to part one so that you can be sure that you're caught up. But then secondly, the handout is the same. So if you are a parent and you're just purchasing this for your own, uh, again, your own reference, your own resource, don't buy the, the handout for 438 because it's the same as show 437. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and begin by looking at what we're going to be talking about in all of today's show, and you can look at it there on your handout. It's called Restrictive Interest and Behaviors, and we commonly refer to these as RRBs, or Restricted Repetitive Behaviors. Sometimes we might see the word rituals associated with this, and it's super, super common in children with autism. In fact, of the four categories that we're going to talk about today, children need to exhibit at least two of these um, difficulties or these these ranges of behaviors that we're going to talk about. And again, remember what we said at the very beginning of show 437, and we repeated it a couple of times. When we're talking with parents about autism, we say what? We say autism affects how a child interacts, how he communicates, and how he behaves. And so today we're going to be talking about the behavior piece. And again, this is listed as section B on your handout. But I want us to go ahead and look at this with the official diagnostic criteria that's from the DSM-5, and we'll put that on the screen now as I read to you the very first uh, section, or the very first definition for point B, so or section B. So this would be 
restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interest, or activities as manifested by at least two of the following currently or by history. So meaning that a kid can have this going on now or a parent may say, well, he used to do this. And so those kinds of things are really important, especially as a child becomes older and some of these things might uh, he might have compensated for. And so again, a really, really important part here for us to talk about. So let's look at this first point and move through these points because we have a ton of video today and I wanna be sure that we are uh, getting to everything that I want to share with you. So the first type of restricted repetitive pattern of behavior would be stereotyped or repetitive motor movements, use of objects or speech. And so examples, simple motor stereotypies, lining up toys or flipping objects, echolalia or idiot syncratic phrases. So that's what we're going to be talking about right here. So uh, I want to refer to the handout, which again, I'm not sure that I mentioned this, but the reason that I did the handout and, and developed this tool for me to use and then to be able to share it with uh, folks who follow my work is because the official criteria, as you've already heard, is really, really difficult. The wording is there's so much professional jargon there that a lot of times parents and even we as therapists might sort of struggle to understand what some of those things mean. And so we want to be sure when we're talking about this that we identify and define uh, those vocabulary differences. And then the other thing I wanted to mention about this tool is I've kept this tool paired with the diagnostic uh, criteria so that point A is worded in just common everyday language uh, based on what the official diagnostic criteria said. So let's start by moving through some of the the definitions of words that I might have used with this official criteria that we would have to define with or define for parents and share with parents. So what is stereotyped means? It just means that it's a child is doing something abnormally and repeating it. <clears throat> so again, there are three ways that a child might have this abnormal, uh, repetitious cycle of behavior, and they always include how a kid might talk, how he might move his body, or how he might use an object. So those are the three kinds of stems that we're going to see. So this area is going to focus on atypical speech, movements, or play with an object or toy. Now here, uh, we're also, there's a component here that means self-stimulatory. So what does that mean? That means that I get the benefit from that. I'm not really doing the spinning so that you can look at it with me and we can share this experience. I'm spinning because I like that. That stimulates me. That does something for me. I'm getting this benefit of, of, out of that. So that's what the self-stimulatory piece of these means. Now, professionals commonly refer to this as stems. And so, again, sometimes this can be the marker between a child getting a, def, uh, a formal diagnosis of autism and then something maybe uh, something like language delay with sensory processing differences. So, again, the Stems here make a big difference because we commonly see them in children with autism. The truth is, though, all of us stem. I mean, I stem because I shake my leg incessantly. Or I might st you might stem if you chew gum all the time. That might be a stem for you. 
or you might flick a pencil around or twirl your hair. We all do these, but the problem becomes when they interfere with learning or interfere with interacting and communicating. So that's kind of the definition too that we need. We can normalize some of the language we use by looking at what all of us do. All of us have self-stimulatory behaviors. Again, when I was talking about shaking my leg, that might be because I'm anxious or that might be if I'm in taking a course uh, to keep me awake, you know, to keep me alert. And so again, there are various purposes for those, but would that, would me shaking my leg interfere with me processing the information coming in from the course? No. And so again, that's where kind of the difference there, and that might help you to think about it in that way, <clears throat> pardon me, or maybe even to explain it a different way. So let's do another little review. And I did this back in 437 where I asked you questions so that you can really master this information. I mean, that's what makes this a continuing education course. So what were the three kinds of stems or stereotype uh, behaviors that we would see with a child? So repetitive speech, repetitive body movements, or repetitive object use. So what's our key word here? It's repetitive. And again, that's how we know it's atypical because it's hard to break that cycle. The child seems to want to do these things over and over and over again. And again, stems serve different purposes. We're not going to talk a, a ton about uh, why, but it's a, it's certainly an important piece here. Here We'll talk about it when we get to the treatment section, but I just want to be sure that you're understanding what these things are. And This is just for identification and for evaluation today, not necessarily treatment. So we'll get into all those other things later, like when we're understanding why a child stems and what we can, what a child may be trying to communicate with us with these stems and how we can help with some environmental modifications or with some things that we are saying or doing directly. But for right now, we're just going to look at the stems. So let's start with repetitive speech. So what does repetitive speech include? It certainly includes echolalia. And so what is echolalia? It means that a child repeats words, phrases, or extensive dialogue that he's heard. So a child may parrot directly, even down to the intonation or the pitch or the volume of what he has heard someone else say. So it could be lines from a movie. It could be a conversation that he or she has overheard. It could be something that you say all the time that they've lifted just from your conversation. It might be an entire book. It might be singing uh, I, I used this example before, but happy birthday in four different languages. <laughs> you know, that is a good example uh, of echolalia for a child who's not otherwise communicating. So there are two types of echolalia. Uh, immediate echolalia, where the child immediately repeats what he or she has heard, and then delayed echolalia, which means that he or she would repeat that information at a later time. Many, many, many children with autism who are verbal already when we get them in early intervention are already echolalic. And so we don't want to, <clears throat> we don't want to pathologize what is probably or what is a strength <laughs> for a child. And sometimes we really do that with autism or we do that in therapy in general. And so we always have to look for what the positive might be. And I, you know, you might think about this as the silver lining in a dark cloud. So when I talk to parents about echolalia, 
I do, again, try to point out the positives and the strengths. So what's the silver lining here with Echolalia? Is that a kid can talk or he or she has a great memory. So they're able to retain that information and then be able to use that verbally. Now, we have to make it meaningful. We have to make it communicative. But again, that's our job as therapists. So when we get a kid that's Echolalic, that's not a bad thing at all. They can already talk. So they're already in that you know, 75% of children who are going to become verbal, who get an autism diagnosis. So, you know, we think, whoo, we're over that first hump. And so again, echolalia is something that we will see often. So I want to show you the first video clip in today's course. This is my little friend who was diagnosed at age two with autism. But here's the kicker. You would have to know his twin sister before you realized that what he's saying here is echolalic. And I made this point back in the first course. Sometimes we don't recognize these things until we see a child do something or we hear him say something over and over and over. So that's certainly the case here with uh, my little friend Brady. And he was not using lots of language outside of his few little uh, echolalic phrases, and this is one of them, and I wanted you to see it. The next kind of repetitive speech is jargon. So what's jargon? Jargon occurs when a child speaks in longer, unintelligible chunks. And so I, I'm terrible at modeling jargon, so I'm not going to do that here for you. But you know what I'm talking about. It might, you might refer to that kind of as baby talk or gibberish or whatever word you use for that. Now, jargon is a part of typical language development. And children usually begin to use jargon when they are going from using single words or a couple of words to making that big leap to talk in phrases and sentences. 
the problem is, or when jargon is not really a part of typical language development, is when it occurs after age two. So we typically see it before age two. And again, it usually signals a language disorder. And, and, and in case you missed this in grad school, and that used to kind of be a joke that I said all the time, jargon isn't necessarily an expressive language problem, even though sometimes therapists or parents will look at that and say, well, I've just got to clean up the Arctic and everything will be okay. Usually it's not that. It's that they are, children aren't really using real words. And so there's a receptive language disorder, especially if jargon continues to occur after the age of two and in the absence of single words and single intelligible words and when a child again there's a receptive language component when he's not really following directions or something else that would indicate that there's a receptive language problem but again that jargon may be your leading indicator on that so jargon is problematic too when it's not directed toward anyone and that's what we see a lot of times in our little guys who have autism and let me say too a lot of times jargon i said that about cleaning up the arctic but sometimes it is that that jargon for our little friends in echolalia is actually, uh, or, or jargon for our little friends with autism is actually echolalia, but we just can't understand it yet. So their uh, phonemic system, their, their sounds that they use, they can't get all the right sounds in the right places. And so we don't recognize it yet as an echolalic phrase. We think it's jargon, but again, this isn't entirely bad. What's the silver lining of jargon? A kid can sequence sounds. They do not have apraxia is what I say when I hear a kid do a long string of jargon because, our, you know, again, our, we're not going to talk a lot about apraxia, but apraxia is a speech disorder. And it's that kids have difficulty planning the the movements that they use for speech. And so even though they know what they want to say, they, they, they can't always get it going. And so or they don't always use words to do that. And so again, and, and it's important for kids with autism because a study that we're going to talk about later in the series, 63% of children with autism also have apraxia. And again, why is this another, you know, we have to know what's going on with the child. We have to know, okay, with language, is this because of autism? Am I going to look at this like an autism issue or is this more because of apraxia? And apraxia would be more the speech piece and autism again would be what? The interaction piece, the communication piece, the behavior piece. And so it's important to kind of pull that out. But but back to my example of what we're talking about right now with jargon is we know that a kid can talk. We know they're sequencing uh, sounds there. We've just got to get that receptive language in place. All right. So again, what's another kind of repetitive speech that we might see in autism? The next example is rote language. And so again, you might think that this is like echolalia and it is, but this is where a child uh, just really has lots and lots of things that, uh, to me, it almost looks like more like academic language. So again, they can count to 50, or they can say the ABCs, or they have a lot of colors, but again, these are, this is rote language. And so they're not using these words communicatively. They may not, even though they're able to say blue, they may not be able to respond when you say accurately when you say what color is this when you're asking them something and so again it's just rote language they've picked it up it is very very similar to echolalia but what's the silver lining here like it was with echolalia he can talk i can understand him he he has a good memory he can he can memorize this so those are things that we that we talk about with strengths and we don't need to ignore that with our little guys with autism too all right so with repetitive speech the last kind here would be repetitive vocalizations and so these would not be words but other kinds of vocal 
behavior that a child would use. So maybe like humming or maybe grunting or maybe making some kind of noise or maybe squealing or any kind of unusual utterance there that you're just not sure what to call, but it's not a word, it's not echolalia, it's not jargon, but what is it? Just call it repetitive speech. And again, what's the the strength here? A child's noisy and none of us can talk until we get noisy. And so uh, it's certainly something that we can use. All right, so let's look at uh, one little friend that we saw back in the previous course, 437. We're gonna see him a lot throughout this series. So let's look at him again. And he was a little guy that really ignored the student who was with me while I was talking to his mom and she was trying with the ball to get his attention and he just wouldn't respond. Here this child is again, and here's an example of vocalizations, which again are more self-stimulatory, meaning that they're not really directed to anybody, so we really can't say that they're uh, that they're serving a communicative function yet, but we see this a lot in our little guys with autism, so watch this. And figuring out what's going to be enough for him to like and get him to join Push. you, or you join him. Push. And don't always worry about, oh my God, I gotta get him to pay attention to something new. Go with what he's already doing. Okay. Which I uh, have to remind myself of that all the time. Now we're to the last kind of repetitive speech. This is called perseverative language, and this is when a child appears to be stuck 
on a particular word or a phrase with excessive repeating. So I gave this example before, a child that might say blue all day long, but not have a, a real meaning attached with that. A child might, I had a little girl one time, the little girl who sang happy birthday in four languages also said peacock about 150 times a day. <laughs> so there was perseverative uh, language there too. And so that certainly is the kind of thing that we see with autism. Uh, so the silver lining is, you know what a kid likes, you know what they're talking about, you know what that interest is. And so those are the kinds of things that we see. I'm going to show you one other example of an atypical language uh, development scenario that we might see in children with autism. And again, this is a more subtle example, a child that you might see that's a little higher functioning, a child that's already verbal. So this would be a child who mislabels an object or maybe uh, like my little friend Anna Marie does in this clip she calls an object the color name rather than the noun or the name of the object. So watch this. Right. Anna Marie, look at her crazy hair. Crazy her, hair. Her hair's all messed up. So what do you need for her hair? I want hair. Okay, you have hair. You hair. want uh I want hair. Oh wait. This isn't hair. What's that? It's uh yellow. Yellow. Is it a yellow shoe? Yeah. No. No way. What is it? A brush, that's right. A little bit of word retrieval problem there. <laughs> Have you been seeing that? Yes, yes. Or especially when she processed something we have said, it'll take her a little while, but then she does get it, which is she a good can. start. You know, anytime she labels it with the color, please make her say the noun and you oh, know, go for the thing and not to. That's such a habit that lots of parents get, and I think we talked about this before, get so excited about academic words like colors and stuff. Mm -hmm. But she really needs to um, say what she means. And she meant, I want the brush, not I want the yellow. So right, exactly. <laughs> Push for that next word. Sure. That's some food. All right, before we move on to the rest of our content, I just want to welcome you here. We have so many new subscribers. If you have not subscribed to the channel already, please consider doing that. We would really, really appreciate it. If you've already done that, I just want again, thank you for being here. And I want to remind you about the handout link uh, below. Lots of parents say, how can we support uh, your work here at Teach Me To Talk? That's a great way to support us here so that we can continue to provide these videos for the parents who can't afford those things. All right, the second kind of STEM that we're going to talk about now is repetitive body movements. Now, we'll see this a lot in our little friends with autism. These are repeated movements of a body or a child's whole body which appear to be atypical and maybe even non-functional. So let's take a look at some of these examples. We're gonna, look, we're gonna look at a lot of video, but let's just talk about it first. So repetitive hand movements, this would be flapping, excessive clapping, wrist rolling, twisting or wringing hands, rubbing or flicking fingers. So any kind of thing with the hands. And again, lots of different variations there. It could be that a child has repetitive pinching or picking of his body squeezing or pinching his little arms or legs. It could be whole body movements where a child rocks while he's sitting or where a child stands or sways or spins or even rocking from foot to foot. This also includes postural abnormalities like toe walking, which we'll see a lot, arching the back, 
tensing and releasing muscles. You'll see that when kids are excited, maybe even that kind of shaking right there, or holding their head, hands, or fingers at an angle. And sometimes we'll see that where children are using uh, various uh, toys like that, holding them up to the light, holding them so that they can see them in different kinds of ways. It also can be repeated movements of the face or mouth, so maybe some twitching with their lips, any kind of grimace that they would make, whether they would pucker their lips or hold their mouths a certain way. It could be grinding their teeth or even getting kind of obsessed with maybe pulling their eyebrows or eyelashes or even their little ears. Now, sometimes parents don't recognize these repetitive patterns because why? They're their children, and, and babies and toddlers, all of them do things that make us just kind of pause and think, what is that? What, why is she doing that? What is she doing? And so, again, sometimes parents don't see it as a self-stimulatory behavior or repetitive behavior, and so we'll have to start to uh, point these things out to parents, and again, in the kindest, gentlest, most caring way that we can. So let's look at several examples of the kinds of repetitive movements that we see in toddlers and preschoolers with autism. So here's my little friend again with his mom. And in this clip, I'm actually talking with both of his parents about his hand movements. And we're trying to kind of talk about what is this? Is this purposeful? Is this communicative? Or is this self-stimulatory? So let's watch this. Or No? Mm-hmm. All done? Yeah. Is that all done? All or do you done? Think that's it? What do you think? <laughs> that's I my problem. I don't think he knows. That's my problem. But if he thinks if we're going to say this is all done, I think we need two to do hands it all together. Two hands together. He hands hasn't been is, doing all done. Two hands is two. certainly all done for sure. That when okay. he does two hands, but when okay. he does the one, when, okay, let's decide. Yeah. If you're gonna, if you think this is all, see, I think this is self-stemming because he's watching it. He's not really looking at you when he's doing it, right. like. Don't you see me I'm trying to this? communicate uh-huh. to me? And this oh, just looks now. like I know I need to do something. Do all you think done. this is all done? The little friend that we just saw has lots of these kinds of movements. So I want to show you as many as I can so that you'll recognize these, even if they're really, really uh, subtle. And so here we are again with his mom, and we're talking about signing. But I want you to watch for his repetitive hand movements. Three or four main signs. Because here's the kicker. This is why signs work so well. You have to be able to imitate here before you can imitate sure. here. And so, right yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So I really would like to see if we can get some of this going. Yes. And signs are the best way because you're rewarding that. I want you to keep on with your math stuff too, Katie. Yeah. That was incredible. Yeah, sure. So he, he did his little, what kinds of things were you doing with that? You were just copying him and then? Just kind of copying each other and then I was trying to build on that. Just, um, you know, trying to actually... T- Now, I'm going to caution you here. His mom and even I there were trying to assign some meaning with him shaking his head yes. And a lot of times, again, we have to take a motor movement that a child is already doing and shape it to make it meaningful. But (laughs) we have to be really careful about this, especially in the beginning of treatment, because we're trying to figure out what this little boy really understands and what he doesn't. Because when we overestimate a child's skills and give him credit for something he doesn't really understand, then we start working on the next thing and then the next thing. And then before you know it, we're at a level that's well beyond, way too high for what that child could ever realistically be able to do. So be careful with that. I am all for giving kids credit and all for my rose-colored 
glasses being on and us just being as positive as we can be. But at the same time, we don't want to mislead a parent and have them think that their child is doing something that he's not so that we don't work above what that child is able to do. All right, here we'll see this same little friend again. Watch him with his hands in front of the TV, and I'm going to discuss this with his parents as well. And he's been so sensory all morning. Yeah. <laughs> all right, back to the same little friend one more time. This time we're going to look at head movements and you're going to see a visual field cut. And what do I mean by that? I mean his eyes are at the side of his little head. And we see this a lot in autism where children are looking out the corner of their eyes. And again, this is a self-stimulatory uh, behavior. It's a repetitive movement because we'll see them do it time and time and time again. So I want you to get a good example of that. Now let's talk about toe walking. It's another really, really familiar example. But again, sometimes we, we miss it because we're so busy doing things with children in the, in the context of the session that we sometimes don't see this unless they're really walking away from us or we're walking to our therapy space or whatever. This is another sweet little friend of mine and watch him as he is on his toes. But his parents really call it dancing and that's fine. But again, these are the things we need to be looking for. Here we go. Two, three, go! Wow, balloon, balloon, more. You want more? Let's look at this same little friend again, and here's where his parents call it dancing. He's really just taking a little break, and again, we know that sometimes self-stems with children are calming. They need that when they're, everything is coming into their little systems, and they are, they are needing to regulate. We don't want them to get overwhelmed. We don't want them to get overstimulated and then avoid us or run away or any, you know, act aggressively or fall apart, any of those little things. And so again, we have to watch for these little, little breaks that a child might take. And he's doing a little stimming here, but it's really, really calming for him. And I want you to see that too. Oh, are you all done? Are you all done or you want more? You want some more? Ready? All right, and here's a really subtle example of a stem. And this is my little friend that, again, was already very, very verbal, very high functioning. But I want you to see what she does here with her arms. And then she has a little stem with her hands. Her parents didn't, at this point, didn't really recognize that she was doing any of these little things. So we have to talk about them. And uh, I just wanted to share this one with you as well. Is it off? I'm going to turn it on. 
look, the switch is on the back, back here. You have to push it up. Push it up. Oh, okay. I hear music. <laughs> Yay. 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 I'd probably redirect that little yeah, that's another self-stimulatory thing. She's not flapping or anything real big though. This just looks like God looks like Yeah. And so she's she's a little bit over the top excited. So if you can't pull it back down, that's great. Okay. Did you hear what I was talking about with her parents in this clip? It's about redirecting her stems, and that's what we have to do. We have we can't really eliminate stems. You can't really take something away from a child that, again, may be serving a purpose like calming down or maybe helping them stay with you, or again, even if it's just expressing excitement. Now, again, we might have to redirect that. There's some things we can do, but I, I wanna go ahead and just kind of preview something I'm going to share in a later course. Stems do not keep a child from talking. They do not prevent that that those that communication ability to happen. So as a speech language pathologist, that's good news for me. I do not have to worry about those stems. And that's certainly something that we can share with parents that that's evidence-based. Research says they have nothing to do with whether a child will become verbal or not. All right, so let's take one more look here at Anna Marie. This one is really subtle too. I want you to watch her legs in this clip. This is an example of unusual body posturing that we talked about. She's just using an unusual little movement here and again it's precious it's so cute and we would we that's that's part of who this little girl is but at the same time we have to recognize that that's a self-stimulatory body movement so that we can uh, again identify these signs when we see them harder to teach watch uh, watch you okay push the star oh good yeah. go <laughs> there they go Yay! Our last kind of STEM that we're going to talk about is repetitive object use. So this would be non-functional physical manipulation of an object. And I bet you've seen this a lot. This would be where kids line things up, they spin, they flip toys or objects. So they're just, again, doing something to get them organized. They might open or close a door or a drawer repetitively. They might repetitively repetitively turn the light switches on and off. They might drop items repeatedly or throw items repeatedly. It might be excessive button pushing on a toy, meaning that the kid is just stuck there with A, 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 A. Yeah, you've heard that right. <laughs> or fidgeting with items. And again, it's not play. And do we do this as adults? Yes, sometimes we'll see adults in meetings sit and do this with a pen. Sometimes with older children, we give them fidget toys because it helps them be able to sit and listen or sit and participate when they might otherwise be disruptive. So these are just things, again, remember we're in the identification section. We're not to the intervention section yet. So I want you to see a couple of these examples. Here's our other little guy that we've seen a lot. He's spinning objects rather than playing. Now his mom does a great job here redirecting his attention to a more functional play activity. And even though we're not to intervention yet, I want to show you this clip. Oh, you got to oh, oh. oh. 
So let's summarize section B.1 with easy to understand everyday language. A child with autism may speak repetitively, use their bodies repetitively, or use repetitive actions with objects in ways that don't seem purposeful. So that's what we're talking about here with point number one. Let's move on to point number two and we'll put the official diagnostic criteria back on the screen so you can take a look at that and remember we're on point two of our restricted uh, and repetitive interest in behaviors. So this one is really important. Insistence on sameness and flexible adherence to routines or ritualized patterns of behavior of verbal or nonverbal behavior. So let's look at some examples that are provided in the criteria as well. Extreme distress at small changes, difficulty with transitions, rigid thinking patterns, greeting rituals, needing to take the same route or eat the same foods every day. So let's unpack this a little bit. And remember, you can, you can get your own copy of the handouts. You can have this to refer to as you are sharing this information with parents. But let's walk through these because this is sometimes uh, a little more difficult to quantify for therapists, so I think this is a great way to do it. So, inflexible adherence to routines. So, this can be described as excessive resistance to change. So, a child might be very rigid in his expectations for how routines are completed. So, if dad is putting the child to bed or a babysitter is putting the child to bed and they don't do it exactly like mom normally does it, that child may totally lose it and not be able to settle down and or go to sleep because, again, they just... They're locked into that routine. It might be that a child is overreactive to even something real subtle. Maybe you switch the variety of goldfish that you feed the child and he or she, again, rejects the goldfish, seems to really, really notice it, and then it goes beyond that. It becomes that overreaction. Or it might be that a child eats only white foods and you try to serve them something that's green. They may really, really have a hard time with that. Uh, poor transitions are very, very common and we see them often in educational settings or even social settings with children with autism. And we certainly see them in therapy. A kid may have difficulty even getting in your door. So oh, that threshold problem, uh, they have a hard time doing that. It might be that they get so stuck on a toy that it's really, really hard to get them to move on. They may start out playing with the school bus at the beginning of the session and an hour later they are still fighting you and resisting that removal of the school bus and so really really hard. It could be that they have a hard time at school moving on from playing in centers to come back to the table and again you might be saying Laura don't don't you see that in every toddler a little bit, but not to the point when it really, really disrupts what's going on. And so that's, again, we're talking about diagnostics. We're not talking about treatment yet and the things that we can do. There are certainly things we can do to help transitions move more smoothly. But at the same time, we have to, again, recognize these things for what they are. This happens a lot too. I'll see this a lot with inflexible adherence to routines. Grandparents and teachers may mislabel this. They may call the kid what? They may say stubborn, he's the most stubborn kid I've ever seen. And so we have to be super careful about that and not labeling something that's a real neurological difference as a temperament or a personality difference. All right, so let's talk about ritualized patterns. What are ritualized patterns? These are unusual routines that have to be repeated or the child becomes extremely upset. So it could be a verbal routine, the child has to say, 
his certain thing over and over and over, or he might insist that you say something a very specific way. And I've had children do that when I'm trying to use the techniques uh, to mitigate or work, make their echolalic, uh, switch out some words with their echolalic phrases. They get, they, at the beginning, they might get really, really mad that I'm not saying it exactly to, as they say it. It might also be a nonverbal ritual. So a child has to complete an action or a sequence of actions the same way every time. And so the most common example of this is in play. Instead of playing with Thomas and Henry and James and those other trains in that little set, He's got to line them up. He doesn't want them around on the track. His play scheme is I want them neatly lined up, and I'm going to be very, very upset if anyone disrupts that. So let's talk about this here with uh, point number two, that insistence on sameness. Uh, what, how can we describe that in easy to understand uh, everyday language for parents? A child with autism may be inflexible and resistant to changes that occur during everyday life. And a lot of times, again, parents are the one telling you about these things. They just don't realize that it's part of autism. And so that's where we talk about that. And we can really even start to have some of these conversations about diagnostics when a parent's really complaining about something like that or even seeking out your help. You know, you, we certainly give them the strategy and we talk about it, but we also say, you know that's really making me think about something else and then you lead into uh, why you think that this might be autism all right so let's look at this next criteria this is section B and we're at point three and I want to put the official diagnostic criteria on the screen so that you can see this and in this uh, category we're going to be talking about intense fascinations and obsessions those so these are highly restricted fixated interest that are abnormal in intensity or focus. And so what's the example here? This would be a strong attachment to or a preoccupation with unusual objects, excessively circumscribed or perseverative interest. So what in the world is that? That's just that a, a child has something that he is over the top attached to, and it is very, very difficult to get him to move on from that. And again, this is so such a core diagnostic feature of autism that it's even described when we were looking at the severity levels. Remember with that back in show 437 and it's on your handout if you've purchased the handout for this course. When we look down at the severity levels, that's included with how easy is it to distract a child or pull him away or get him to transition to something beyond one of his restricted, uh, repetitive interests here. So, so that's what we're talking about. So this would be a child's unusual, intense, or abnormal obsession, fascination, or preoccupation. So this might be that he has unusual exploration, meaning he's not going to just look at the new new Hot Wheels card that you gave him. He is going to study it and study it and study it. And let's say you give it to him and let's say he's in the back seat of the van and you've given it to him and you are driving. Let's say it's an hour and a half drive. And he has done that the entire time. He sat and just looked and looked and looked at that Hot Wheels car. Or it might be something, you know, the time, again, the, the scope of that, the, the amount of time that he spends doing that is certainly a factor in that. And I'm not saying he has to do it for an hour and a half before we're going to consider that uh, as, as part of this, that I'm just saying that that, that that his focus there is unusual from what we would expect to see knowing what we know about other toddlers. So it could be, and again, Amy Weatherby calls this sticky attention, meaning it is so hard for me to move my attention onto something else. I am just 
fascinated with this and I'm just fixated on this. So if you have something like that with a child, that would fall under this category. Uh, this would be, and again, kids who have different kinds of interests. So I had a little boy one time who was obsessed with his vacuum cleaner and he wanted to sleep with the vacuum cleaner. And his mom and dad finally got to the point where he, he could he could have it there because he needed to sleep, but then he had to have it beside the bed. And you know, but then they used some desensitization so that they could gradually move it toward the door and eventually got the vacuum out of his room. But again, that's not common, is it? It's not con certainly not common for a two-year-old, right? And so look for those kinds of things. It might be hoarding or clutching favorite items and resisting their removal. So if he loves Thomas the Train, it is very hard to get him to put Thomas the train down so that he can take a bath or so that you can he can eat or that you can do anything else with that this is also uh really really common with kids who kind of become obsessed with shapes colors letters and numbers and we all know our little friends, a lot of our little friends with autism will kind of do that. And again, that's a strength. I mean, we don't want to discourage him learning numbers. We would never say to a parent, I know he loves letters, but quit talking about the alphabet. You would never do that, right? It's a strength. But when it becomes obsessive to the nature that he doesn't want to do anything else or learn anything else or pay attention to anything else. And again, we're just in the diagnostic section right now. We'll talk about these things with treatment, but, but we see these a lot in children with autism. It might be persistent focus on the non-functional part of an object. So instead of rolling, like we said, the train and hooking the trains up, he just wants to sit and flick the wheels. This might also be unusual fears. And if you've worked with children with autism, you'll certainly see that. We might have, I've had children who were afraid of feathers, children who were afraid of leaves. I mentioned before the little boy that was afraid of coming over a threshold. That was a real fear for him. So that made a transition problem and an atypical fear. And we'll see that a lot with our little guys with autism or may see it. All right, so here's another video clip of my little friend. And this is him holding something. And remember what we said, they may clutch or hoard a preferred item and resist that removal or redirection. And here my little guy's doing the same thing. about this before and I really want to make sure that I give you some really concrete ways to differentiate a normal toddler jag or something a toddler wants to do or likes to do which a lot of our all of our little friends in this age range are prone to do kind of get stuck on something let's talk about what differentiates this from the kind of intense attachment that we're talking about with autism well first of all it exceeds a typical level of interest and so what do we mean by that meaning that toddlers are fickle people 
they may like something one day and then reject it the next day. And so we don't really see kind of the moving on that we do uh, with our little friends on the spectrum like we do with uh, our typically developing little friends. Or it might just be that they only want to play with this one thing to the exclusion of everything else. So again, that would be an atypical level of interest. Uh, it might be, as I mentioned before, with my little friend who had the attachment to vacuum cleaners, this is a different kind of toddler jag with autism because it usually is unusual for the toddler to like the item, or at least it could be. So when we see things, when a kid is really is three, but he's obsessed with Major League Baseball to the point where he's wanting his dad to read him statistics or something like that. Or I had a little guy one time who liked cars like his dad did, but guess what he did? He wanted to memorize the make and model of every car so that when they're going down the street, he's saying, Ford Taurus! Honda Odyssey, you know, and, and really, again, that's atypical for a toddler to do that. It could be that they spend a great deal of time and energy pursuing that special interest. And like we've already said, to the exclusion of other things. So you don't see their play skills develop. They're just focused on this one little area. And lastly, it's that it is really hard to get that child to move on and redirect their attention. So they become very, very upset when they're ritualized patterns of play or when that object, when we try to take that away and get them uh, to do something else. All right, so let's summarize this third point in, in section B with our restricted repetitive interest in behaviors. A child with autism may be inflexible and resistant to changes that occur during everyday life. And again, that just makes it really, really uh, difficult for uh, parents to uh, help that child and certainly for his teachers in a daycare setting or a school system setting uh, so that, that he can move on and participate fully. And again, it's because they have those highly restricted fixated interests and, and, and we're just talking about identification at this point. So that's certainly something that points to autism. Now let's talk about the last possibility in this section B. And remember, we're back here, restricted and repetitive interest in behaviors. And remember, kids had to have at least two of these four criteria. So we're down to number four. And let's look at the official diagnostic criteria. And this would have to deal with the child's sensory processing issues. So hyper or hypo reactivity to sensory input or unusual interest in the sensory aspects of the environment. So what's the example they provided? Apparent indifference to pain or temperature, so that would be hypo reactivity. Adverse response to specific sounds or textures excessive smelling or touching of objects, and visual fascination with lights or movement. So they gave us lots of different examples there with different sensory responses. So in that official criteria there, they've talked about uh, pain there that kids may not may be able to really really get hurt and you you know they've fallen so badly that you think oh no I'm going to see blood and then the child just jumps up and moves on like nothing ever happened uh, I had a little guy one time that crawled in an oven he did not recognize that the oven was on and that it was hot and so he had burns severe burns on his hands and his arms because he he was very strong and could open appliance doors and he crawled in that oven before his mom could even get him and she said he stayed there because he really didn't recognize that he was burning. And so certainly that's a sensory difference there. Other examples here uh, are uh, extreme overreactions to sounds, maybe a fire alarm might set a child off. 
uh, say he's at school and hears the fire alarm and even the fire drill, the teachers and his paraprofessionals in his classroom know, oh, we've got to prepare him. He's, he, he freaks out when he hears this. He, he has a meltdown when, it, when this occurs. And so again, we might see these things. We might see a child who rejects the texture of food. Uh, they don't want anything in their mouth that's not just crunchy, crunchy. Or it could be a child who seeks out like smelling or touching of objects. These are kids who have to fidget with things like we talked about. Have you had a smeller on your caseload before? <laughs> I have, and that's really, really interesting. They, they certainly do seek out that, that stimulation. Where that's how one of the ways that they process information. So let's define, I've given you some good examples here, but so let's define what uh, some of these other words were. I jumped ahead a little bit, but I, this is what we've been doing at the beginning of every section after we've reviewed the official diagnostic criteria because we want to be sure that we are talking with parents about what, what these words really mean. So hyper, of course, means an overreaction above and beyond normal, and hypo is an underreaction or below normal. So the example that I gave you with a little boy that crawled in the oven, he had a hypo response for pain and temperature, right? Because he didn't recognize and didn't really uh, feel that danger there. Hyper, uh, an example, you know, maybe that we, uh, that I gave you with that would be a kid who's hyper responsive to say, uh, pureed textures in his mouth, mushier textures. He doesn't like it. He, it has to be something that he can chew. He has to have, he likes chips. He likes chicken nuggets. He likes french fries. He won't do yogurt or jello or uh, anything like that. You know, he, he, and so when he gets that kind of food in his mouth, he gags, you know, it's, it's offensive to him. And so those are the differences there with hyper and hypo responses. So again, it's sensory input here means anything that a child perceives with the senses. And we've given uh, lots of examples already. So what a child sees, what he hears, what he touches, what he feels, as he moves, what he smells, what he tastes. And again, this was added to the autism criteria in 2013. It's been around nine years now, so we're all really accustomed to that. But sensory issues are really, really prevalent in our little friends who will go on to be diagnosed with autism. They're also, it's also possible to have sensory issues and not have autism. And so certainly sensory processing differences are are common in our little guys with developmental differences. And so we can kind of expect that, but they're particularly common in children with autism. Now, not every kid with autism will have lots of sensory differences, but in my experience, most of them do. <laughs> and so uh, I want you to be sure that you've got good ways to explain this as you're talking with parents about it. So let me just give you what I say to parents and you adapt this, you know, one of the, the the most beneficial things that I get when I go to a conference or another or take a course is listening to how someone else explains something and thinking, oh, that is good. That's how I'll say it from now on. So I hope that you can do this. And with sensory processing differences and sensory regulation, however, whatever your little terminology is for that, it's hard to talk to parents about that, especially, you know, they may not have heard that before. This may be really, really, really new to them. And so we have to start back at the beginning and talk about how all of us 
all of us process all this sensory information coming into us constantly. Here sitting, videoing this course, we have lights. So I have the lights coming in. I can hear the air conditioner in the background. I can feel the air on my skin. Certainly, uh, you know, that's sensory processing information. The light coming in from the door, the other things that I can see in this environment, all of us do. And so you might just, with a parent, you know, talk about that. What are some of the sensory things that are coming into us now? And people, all of us, even young children, even babies, with normal sensory systems are able to adapt. We just filter out what we don't need and we process what we do need. So as I'm sitting here talking to you, it doesn't really matter that the air's going. I can hear it, but so what? It doesn't bother me. It doesn't keep me from talking to you. And so again, this is how we separate what's important versus what's not important. Our little guys with autism have a really hard time doing that. They have difficulty learning to regulate their physical bodies so that they can eat, so that they can sleep, and so they can pay attention and again we all do this even as we even as adults when we miss sleep when we start going from when, when we decrease from seven hours of sleep to four and five hours of sleep in a night that's a big deal we are not going to process or be able to adjust and regulate how we respond to incoming information in the next couple of days because we miss so much sleep and so again that's a good way to explain it to parents so they really really understand it and we say we have to learn how to regulate all these physical sensations that are coming in, plus all of our internal uh, signals and, and uh, uh, reactions that we get with our body. And that helps us really, again, learn to adjust to life so that we can hear a fire alarm without freaking out, so that we can put on a new shirt that's maybe a little heavier than we've been wearing. Let's say that it's summertime and we're going to fall and mom wants us to wear long pants and long sleeves. And sometimes our friends with autism and, and our, even our other little guys with sensory processing differences, that's hard. And so when kids can't do that, they become overloaded. They can appear distractible. They can appear irritated. They can be upset or crying or even so hyperactive running away from you. And that busyness, they're trying to deal with their own internal noise about that. So meanwhile, their little brains and their bodies are struggling to process what's going on around them and how they're feeling. And so again, that's why we see those big overreactions. And it's also, it also explains why we see the underreaction. So remember, we had both ends of those spectrums here, the hyper overreactors and then certainly the under responders too. And so that's what we're going to talk about. And this is what I'll talk about with parents. We have sensory avoiders. These are the kids who are the get it away from me. They don't like uh, going on swing, say a merry-go-round, so that, that makes them dizzy. They don't like that perception. So again, they're going to avoid that with all that they have. They may, you may see kids who avoid foods. You know, they don't like, like we've been talking about the crunchy versus purees. It might be the color. They avoid any food that's not white. And so again, that's a sensory avoider. A sensory seeker is the other end of that. These are kids who seek out those experiences. So these are the kids who run all the time or the kids who jump all the time. The kids who are so busy they're in constant motion and so again you're going to want to help parents see that so that they can understand it now sometimes uh, our sensory issues overlap with self-stimulatory behaviors and again why do kids stem you know again we're not going to talk about that in this show but the reasons that the, that they stem are often too calm or to help themselves process what's going on around them and so again that's why they're often linked 
with uh, their self-stimulatory behaviors. Now, the obvious ones here are going to be our visual stems, where kids stare at something or visually explore it for a long time, where they hold an object really close to their eyes, whether they or watch things from unusual angles. We might even see repetitive blinking or even squinting. You know, those are our visual stems. Uh, visual stems can also be really subtle. Let's look at our little friend Anna Marie again and watch here how she's holding that bird right up to her eyes. Push the button, bird. Look, they're going around, around. I see that bird. I see him. Look, let's do something else. Hmm. Let's see. I've lost some of my little things. Look, here's a plate for Bird. Can Bird eat his food? Can you give him his food? He's eating. Oh, he's sitting down. Look, this is Bird's bed. It's so little. Sit down, Bird. Now, sometimes we see behaviors in our little friends and we aren't even sure what to call them. <laughs> Let's watch another uh, clip again of a little friend that we saw earlier. He's got some sensory seeking behaviors with rubbing his head on the carpet. So watch this. Let's push. Push. Uh-oh, we gotta push it. Push, push. <laughs> push, push, push. We push it. Wait, wait. Now here's another example of sensory seeking behavior that's a little bit more subtle. I want you to watch my little friend here with what he does with the drumstick and the shape that he's about to put in the shape sorter. Notice what he does with those and then we're going to talk about it after the clip. Yay! You do. Yellow, yellow, yellow. All right, what did he do with those things? He didn't mouth them, but did you see him place those objects near his mouth and on his face? That's more subtle, but that's certainly an example of the kind of sensory seeking behavior that we may see. Now, one thing that can be tricky for us as therapists and parents is that we can't always solidly classify a child as an avoider or a, or a seeker because he might do both. <laughs> some sensations or some experiences that he that he wants to partake in he may love so he wants more and more and more and more and more of that that might be again an example of a little kid who's always on the move who in a therapy room he's all over the place but then you want him to play with play-doh and he is icked out he doesn't want it on his hands he doesn't like how it smells and in that sense he would be an avoider and so how i explain that to parents is there's no set pattern. His little system is so dysregulated and so so needs to be normalized. We need to help him become normal in his how he how he perceives sensations so that he can be a little more comfortable in his own skin and so that he can participate. And again, regulatory differences are so important because they really affect how a kid sleeps, how he pays attention, even how he eats, how the number of meltdowns that we'll have in a day. So certainly a big, big part 
of treating children with autism is helping parents understand how their systems are different and then helping parents develop compensations, which we call strategies, so that we can meet those sensory needs, so that we can get that child's little body and his little brain in that just right place for learning. All right, so let's summarize this fourth point here under uh, point section B with restricted repetitive patterns of behavior and here we're looking at sensory issues and we say that a child with autism may avoid seek or react to incoming sensory experiences in everyday life in unexpected and unusual ways and let me say one more thing when we see sensory issues in children, certainly we as speech language pathologists need to address that. And I'm currently working on a course coming up for that because I think it's so, so important. But we also need to really be relying on our colleagues who are occupational therapists. And so if we have the ability to refer and have a child see an OT and have an OT help you with that and work with that family closely to develop a sensory diet and develop those compensations like we've already talked about that would be super super important and even if we can't do that because of payer sources or limited just limited availability whatever the reason might might be having a colleague who's an ot that you can talk with about some of these things can just be so so important for you as early interventionists and sometimes we as sole practitioners when we're in private practice we don't get the benefit of talking through some of these issues with other therapists because they're not employed uh, by the same place or you know again we're working for ourselves so be sure that you're cultivating some personal relationships so that you can benefit from what an OT would say about some of the sensory things that you may be, those sensory differences that you may be seeing uh, on children on your caseload. So that's the end of section B. So I want to do what we did back in show 437 and earlier in this course as well. I want to give you a little quiz so that I can make sure that you are really mastering this information. So here with section B, when we looked at repetitive speech and movement, so our, our stems, repetitive speech movements or object use, insistence on sameness and inflexible expectations, intense fascinations and obsessions, and then the sensory differences. How many of those four criteria does a child have to meet to get an official diagnosis of autism? Just two. He does not have to have all four of those things. Now I want to share another really interesting study that I've just read and I think this is so important for those of us who practice in early intervention uh, and who see children in their homes. Now we may see, according to this study, more RRBs in a clinical setting or anywhere new outside of a child's home. So what does that mean? That means he's going to look better at home because it's new and it's familiar versus in an outside setting. And so again, when a parent is saying, he has never looked this bad. It, this is usually better at home. This is just because he's new. this is new. They're right. But guys, we've got to be able to really know that about a child and know when we're seeing them at home that it may, that if we're seeing these problems at home, an examiner in a professional setting would see them even more. And so here's the study that I was talking about. It took 12-month-olds with older siblings who were diagnosed with autism, and they saw, the examiner saw many, many more signs of autism in a clinical setting versus when they saw those kids at home. And again, that's why working at home with a child who is in this toddler age range and developmental range is so important because we get their best. 
They're most familiar, they're most subtle, they're most regulated. But at the same time, this is why we may miss the severity of things in some of our little friends because they, they, they're at home. They've gotten used to that environment and they, again, you're not going to see some of the same things. So for a clear diagnosis in this kind of uh, with this kind of circumstance, you're going to want to see a child over multiple days and in multiple uh, settings, at least a couple, to get a bigger picture of what his parents are saying and what's really, really going on. So, uh, again, to summarize this whole section here, uh, these are things that we see with children in, in autism, and we want to be sure that we are helping parents recognize uh, these issues or these things for what they are. That is not to say that we're going to correct these things in therapy or that we're going to intervene. I've already spoken with you about STEMs, and it is, if we're going to talk about stems you know you're never going to eliminate them we can replace them we can redirect them but why would we really bother as speech language pathologists if they're not interfering we already said we're going to look at that great study that said that a child's stems don't really interfere with learning how to communicate and so we can't pathologize all of these things what we're doing is just really really looking at this is a criteria this is something that we see in children with autism why do we want a child to have that that label or that diagnosis so we can get him the best help possible now i mentioned this at the beginning of the show and i forgot uh, to say this and i want to say it now sometimes parents will not be in an emotional place where they can even talk about autism and certainly not get an evaluation to get the diagnosis but some parents aren't there some parents are ready some parents are relieved because they say I knew something was wrong with him I've been trying to get somebody to get him some help I, this has been bothering me you know I've known this forever I am just so happy that somebody is going to tell me what to do with this child so every parent is not going to be negative about the diagnosis and then autism too sometimes I say I've talked about autism being scary with parents and for lots of parents it is but for some parents it's not and again when we can help parents move through those initial phases we certainly have to meet them where they are we certainly have to be attuned enough with them and be good enough communicators that we are assessing where a parent is with this and how a parent is handling this information but at the same time not all parents feel that way and so we have to recognize that too and if a parent is ready and, and is it doesn't need to go through all that uh, all, all of those levels of acceptance, that's, that's fantastic. We help them move along as well. All right, so now we are really at the end of all this diagnostic criteria. We were looking at, does this child have autism? Does he not have autism? How can I explain this better to parents? Now we're going to get to do in the remaining shows in this series what I like best, which is to talk about intervention. And I want to give you just the most practical usable strategies that I have ever found to work with uh, children with autism. And I hope that you'll join me for the, for the rest of this series. Now, before we go, I want to share with you a great resource that I uh, developed a couple of years ago for working with therapists and for families and parents of children with autism. And so you can use this information if you're a therapist or certainly if you're parenting your own child with autism or suspected autism, this is called the Autism Workbook. And it is a wonderful resource for you because you'll you'll have not only the strategies that you need to address talking, which is what parents normally think about with speech therapy, but it's looking at how that child, again, interacts, communicates, and behaves. So we'll be looking at 12 different focus areas that we 
think about when we're determining beginning speech therapy plans for children with autism. And I filled this book with checklists and with every chapter in every uh, section that you'll be looking at. Say, for example, play skills. You'll be looking at a child's play skills and I'm going to ask you some very specific questions that will help you determine where you start working with the child, what you focus on first, and then what you'll focus on next. And we do that throughout uh, all, all those developmental domains and all of those skills that are gonna be necessary for you to help your child with autism become a communicator. So there's a link below for that fantastic resource. And I, know, I hope that's gonna help you uh, as much as it's helped me. All right, that's all for today. I hope that you'll join me for the rest of these, this series. And again, we're gonna look at video clips of intervention. And it's just my very favorite thing to talk about in the world. All right, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thanks so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talks podcast. <laughs>